This week on Political Research Digest, how Federalist Society vetting replaced confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. We already know that Brett Kavanaugh will be a strong conservative on the Supreme Court, just like Neil Gorsuch, but not because of confirmation hearing vetting. Both were handpicked by the Federalist Society, giving conservatives the assurances they need and making liberals want to ask tough questions that may not get answered. In her recent Oxford University Press book, Ideas with Consequences, Amanda Hollis-Bresky of Pomona College finds that the Federalist Society helped engineer a conservative counter-revolution through scholarly exchange and a field system for future justices. I talked to her about how and why their dream has come to fruition under Presidents George W. Bush and Donald Trump. But will we learn anything from the confirmation hearings that we don't already know? I also talked to Paul Collins of the University of Massachusetts about his new Chicago Kent Law Review article with Lori Ringhan, Neil Gorsuch and the Ginsburg Rules, and their related book, Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change. They find that nominees do often share their views on settled law, but that Gorsuch was much less forthcoming. The conservative rise to a solid Supreme Court majority has not merely been the product of a few justices, but the wider conservative legal movement tracked by Hollis Bresky. Large shifts in constitutional understanding, constitutional revolutions, require more than just five justices on the Supreme Court. They require help from the broader legal community, from lawyers who know how to find and bring the right cases before the Supreme Court, to academics who have to work to develop the ideas and legitimate the theories that those judges rely on when they shift constitutional meaning, and to the broader public. There are people who go out and try to sell Supreme Court decisions so they seem legitimate, so they don't seem off the wall. And what the Ideas with Consequences is showing is that over the past 30 years, we've been experiencing a conservative counter-revolution and that all of that work has been located in and and really accomplished by members of the Federal Society Network. The main arena for the rise of the conservative legal movement has been the Federalist Society, but it does not operate like a normal interest group. The organization does not take official policy positions. It doesn't officially lobby as an organization. It doesn't endorse political candidates as an organization, and yet its members do all of these things. Responding to leftward shifts on the bench, conservatives built an alternative legal elite. Conservatives had long experienced what they thought was judicial drift or the greenhouse effect. They'd find these, what they thought were good, solid conservative judges. They'd nominate them to the federal bench, to the Supreme Court. But then these judges would come to D.C., uh, which was dominated by liberal elites. They'd want to be invited to the, the good cocktail parties in Georgetown. They'd want the approval of the local media, which was left-leaning and liberal. And so they'd start to drift from their good conservative position over to the left. And this is how the Federal Society would explain uh, picks like uh, Justice Stevens and Harry Blackman. And I think the last one that fell victim to the greenhouse effect would someone like David Souter. So the idea was the Federal Society would establish an alternative elite, a conservative and libertarian elite that could uh, take the place of that liberal set, that could provide a, a reference point and a competing audience. By changing personnel and ideas, they made changes in areas like campaign finance law. So the Federal Society has two mottos, two mantras, if you will. And I heard these over and over when I was uh, interviewing core members of the Federal Society in 2008. 
And the first motto was ideas have consequences. That was taken from a, a conservative intellectual named Richard Weaver, a book he wrote in 1948. Um, and the second mantra was policy is people. And so ideas don't have consequences unless you have the right people and positions of power to espouse those ideas, to draw on those ideas, to legitimate those ideas. And so this is um, the story of campaign finance uh, is a story of policy as people, because obviously it wasn't until after Alito and Roberts joined the court and are appointed by George W. Bush, both Federal Society members, that it's even possible um, to issue an opinion uh, like the opinion in Citizens United. Uh, But it's also about ideas, the ideas that allowed the Supreme Court to strike down uh, this area of campaign finance law were about corporations and corporations having First Amendment rights. But Supreme Court nominations played a central role in the conservative legal movement's rise, starting with the failure of Judge Robert Bork. Bork certainly was a rallying cry within the Federal Society. So a lot of the early Federal Society founders were actually working in the Reagan Justice Department. And Bork was a hero of theirs. He was one of the early patrons of the Federal Society. He's one of the few open conservative uh, legal academics in the academy at the time, along with people like Scalia, Richard Epstein. But there were only a handful of them. And so Bork's failed nomination, I think, allowed the Federal Society to, to mobilize, number one. And number two, I think it allowed them to understand that it's not enough to try to shove people through nomination hearings to get access to power and just put people through. You need to win the broader battle for control of ideas. And so Bork's judicial philosophy today is mainstream. And I think that's a credit to the Federal Society and promoting originalism, the idea that you interpret the Constitution according to its original public meeting. By the time George W. Bush was ready to nominate, Hollis Bresky says they had achieved critical mass. There was enough talent that George W. Bush administration could pick almost exclusively from the Federal Society. The second element there is uh, about the American Bar Association. So it's during the George W. Bush administration that those on the right, conservatives, libertarians, and particularly those within the Bush administration, decide that the American Bar Association and their rankings, which had been relied on since Eisenhower, are illegitimate. They're biased, they're left-leaning, And so that the American Bar Association should be sidelined in the process. And instead, George W. Bush said he and Alberto Gonzalez, who was a Federal Society member, would look to the Federal Society Network for good conservative judges and justices. And Trump has taken it to a new level, releasing a public list of Federalist Society approved nominees. Actually publishing a list might be one of Donald Trump's only good innovations uh, in terms of judicial nominations and selection. Prior to Trump's list, which was, was and is public, the process was always very cloak and dagger. Um, you know, nominees were vetted kind of secretly. We didn't know who was being considered unless there was a leak. This way, and I don't think it was because Donald Trump is a fan of transparency, but I think uh, rather he did it for political reasons to lure elite conservative and uh, Republican legal types to him and to support him. Um, That list allows the public 
to really scrutinize and vet and make their own decisions about who is being considered. But Paul Collins says Trump's first nominee, Neil Gorsuch, broke the mold when it comes to refusing to answer questions at his confirmation hearings. In terms of history, Gorsuch was the least forthcoming nominee in about the last 50 years. So the thing is, is that nominees have always avoided answering certain types of questions. And on the other hand, they've answered other types of questions. Gorsuch stands out quite a bit in the sense that he was re- he really got a pass from the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee in terms of what he was allowed to refuse to answer. It's disappointing because we used to learn quite a bit from confirmation hearings. Supreme Court confirmation hearings, they do have value and nominees in the past have given substantive answers to important legal questions. However, Neil Gorsuch failed to offer much of anything of substantive value at his hearing. So if we want the hearings to return to being a valuable part of the confirmation process, we need to insist that Trump's nominee, Judge Kavanaugh, answer the senator's questions on settled matters of constitutional law to illustrate that he's part of the constitutional mainstream. In the new article, Collins and Ringhand test the popular view that nominees refuse to answer questions in their hearings. We set out to empirically test the conventional wisdom, and we did so over the course of a a book and a series of articles, including this one. So with regard to the broader uh, project, our results generally challenge the conventional wisdom in the sense that we we find that nominees do often give their opinions on settled matters of constitutional law. So, for example, recent nominees have affirmed a constitutional right to privacy, that the First Amendment protects nonpolitical speech, and that gender discrimination should be held to an intermediate scrutiny standard. But they did confirm the conventional wisdom about when nominees avoid questions. We demonstrate that nominees generally avoid taking firm positions on currently controversial issues, with abortion probably being the best example. The justification for not answering questions, or the excuse depending on your perspective, usually goes by the name the Ginsburg Rule. First, there's this idea that nominees should avoid taking positions on controversial matters of the law because it might give the appearance of bias for future litigants. So in other words, you know, judges shouldn't look like they've already prejudged a case. The second aspect of the Ginsburg rule involves a separation of powers. And the idea here is that it's inappropriate for the Senate to require nominees to pledge themselves to particular positions as a condition of confirmation. To do this, the idea is that it would result in the Senate having an inappropriate level of influence over the Supreme Court. But they directly compared Gorsuch and Ginsburg and found a huge gulf in their responsiveness. Ginsburg took firm positions on about eight times as many cases and issues as Gorsuch did. So Ginsburg, for example, took firm positions on Griswold versus Connecticut, Dred Scott versus Sanford, Brown versus Board of Education, Lemon versus Kurtzman, and very atypically Roe versus Wade. The senators couldn't even get Gorsuch to say that Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided. So, you know, they really couldn't have, have demonstrated a different approach to their hearings. They collected data on privileged answers and firm answers. Privileged responses are when nominees refuse to answer questions on the grounds that doing so would give the appearance of bias for future litigants would violate judicial independence or, or some similar reason. Firm answers, we define quite narrowly as when nominees provide firm, current positions 
on clearly identified legal issues or cases. And they found steady or increasing responsiveness overall, despite Gorsuch. What we show is that nominees have always avoided answering certain types of questions, but they've always opted to answer other questions. Nominees have actually been answering more questions over time, although the two more recent nominees have been a little bit more evasive than than, uh, their counterparts. Gorsuch stood out even compared to Bush's nominees. Alito was very forthcoming. He took firm positions on about 10% of his questions. Roberts was about 2% of the time. I wouldn't be surprised if we see Kavanaugh look a little bit more like Alito and Roberts than Gorsuch for the reasons I identified that I I think it's going to be harder for Kavanaugh to, to, to just avoid answering even the most basic questions of constitutional law. Republican senators famously refused to hold hearings on election year Obama nominee Merrick Garland, possibly because he might have come off as a moderate in the judicial mainstream. I think what would have learned from Merrick Garland is that he was probably as moderate as people expected him to be. Um, He was a real consensus choice. I think he would have affirmed the most basic current constitutional consensus and probably wouldn't have gone much further than other recent nominees. I think he probably would have had a relatively smooth path. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Republicans were hesitant to hold hearings, because I think He would have come across as perfectly within the constitutional mainstream, and it would have been exceptionally difficult to not vote in support of his confirmation. Collins expects Kavanaugh will need to disclose more of his views in his confirmation hearings. His unpopularity kind of reflects the president's unpopularity, but Kavanaugh has Robert Bork levels of popularity, which doesn't play into his favor if he's overly evasive. And then lastly, the Democrats are really looking for a fight on this one. So they're going to bring out everything they have at the hearings, and I suspect there may be some new information that doesn't paint him in a favorable light and he'll feel the need to defend himself. And that might involve being much more forthcoming than than Neil Gorsuch was. Polarization means most senators have already made up their mind, but Collins still sees some potential for crossover votes. The broader polarization and the hearings are closely tied together. I think in part because of polarization, the hearings look very adversarial, with same party senators giving nominees softball questions and opposite party senators appearing quite hostile. I think if a nominee knocked their hearing out of the park, I think they could pick up uh, some opposite party votes, even you know potentially more than 10, which suggests that the performances at the hearings can matter quite a bit. And, and Elena Kagan comes to mind. I thought that she did a really great job at her hearing. She walked that line between what questions you answer and what questions you avoid quite well. She was uh, generally impressive. Even the Republican senators commented on her um, in those terms. But Republicans will keep nominating conservatives. Presidents have corrected their mistakes like Souter. What they learned is that they really have to vet nominees to, to ensure they have their conservative bona fides, right? They, they were huge mistakes for Republican presidents, and, and I don't think the conservative legal movement will ever forget that. So under the Trump administration, you know, they farmed out the role of vetting these nominees and of, of grooming these nominees to groups like the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, who, again, have done a really good job at Hollis Bresky says they won't make that mistake again. The last four Republican nominees have descended from the same now-entrenched network. 
you know, Roberts and Alito are involved a little bit earlier, and they're both in the Reagan Justice Department with some of the early founders. And so they have been involved with the organization for longer. But Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are extraordinarily well known to the organization. You can just look at the Federal Society website. And it lists all of Kavanaugh's presentations, his conference appearances. He's been involved since that Bush uh, Justice Department. He was one of those who did the vetting and selection for judges and judicial nominees in the Bush White House before he himself was tapped for the federal judgeship. And so he is deeply involved uh, in the federal society. And Gorsuch as well. Gorsuch had given the Barbara K. Olson Memorial Lecture, which is a very high profile lecture within the federal society and was extraordinarily well known. Collins agrees with Hollis Brusky that the federal society has taken over some vetting roles from the Senate, but he doesn't think it's a good trend. The federal society does an excellent job of establishing the conservative bona fides for the individuals on President Trump's list. I think where the hearings come into play is that it's cover for it, right? So by giving Republican nominees a pass with regard to what they might say at the hearings, they're basically hiding the fact that these are extremely conservative justices that have been vetted by an interest group that is incredibly good at what it does. It's a bit of a puzzle that Trump has leaned so heavily on conservative elites for his court nominees. Hollis Bresky says it's built of his incompetence and the positive feedback he receives. Trump has largely outsourced the entire operation, judicial selection, judicial nomination to the federal society. I think there is a, a competency issue there. I, I don't think Donald Trump has any idea of what constitutes a good conservative or libertarian judge or justice. I don't think he has any real understanding of the Constitution, of what the courts do. This is a man who's filed a lot of lawsuits in his life, but I don't think he has a really good sense of the role that the Supreme Court plays in you know, shifting constitutional meaning over time and adjudicating the separation of powers, the relationships between the federal government and the states. They're not issues that Donald Trump thinks about. These are not issues that Donald Trump cares about. I believe he's outsourced it to the Federal Society, number one, because he has no understanding of it. But number two is because this is one area where he's consistently gotten approval and applause from the conservative and libertarian elite. And Collins agrees it's a marriage of convenience rather than shared trusts. This might be just one of those rare areas where President Trump and others in his administration realize they're not experts. But of course, he's not at all shy about claiming credit for his judicial appointment. So I think it's a complicated relationship he has with uh, the, the conservative legal movement. But ultimately, they enable him to not only build his partisan base of support, but also to claim credit, which is we know what presidents are looking to do. So what else should we look for in the confirmation hearings? Collins will be looking at racial and gender dynamics. When we were reviewing the hearing transcripts over the course of really almost the last 10 years now, we came to believe that female and racial minority nominees might be treated differently by senators at the hearings. So, for example, we have a forthcoming article in the Law and Society Review that demonstrates that female nominees get more questions from senators regarding their competence to serve on the court. And then at this year's American Political Science Association meeting, we're presenting a paper that examines whether female and racial minority nominees are more frequently interrupted by senators at the hearings. So 
we've come to believe that there's some gender and racial dynamics that are certainly worth exploring, particularly as the hearings are so high profile. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Amanda Hollis-Brusky and Paul Collins for joining me. Pick up your copies of Ideas with Consequences and Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change, and then join us next time to find out how political donors are changing the ideological makeup of each major party.